What's up everyone, welcome to Desolation Radio, it's me, your boy Dan Evans, I'm joined by the boy Steph, aka Shrieking Tin Man, how are you son, you okay? Not too bad man, I'm waiting on a Covid test, like, it's pretty good, so like, <laughs> you might you might get to find out during the course of the intro whether I've got Covid, but, oh, alright, let's, I've been sucking off the novel coronavirus Covid-19, <laughs> so that'll do it, yeah, I'll be that'll man. do it, like, yeah, but can you say you um, ironically struggle with the throat swabs, like? Yeah, yeah, I ate it, like, I can't stand it, and, like, what's, like, um, bad is, that, like, I've got dyspraxia, and generally, like, a nightmare, so people, like, the, the people in the test centre have been back and forth there so many fucking times this week, and, like, they have flat out openly you. started to resent me, like, yeah, yeah. I've never seen such a thing, <laughs> like, <laughs> you get to the point where it's like you, you can play along with someone's ineptitude thus far when well, you're I, excuse, excuse my ignorance but obviously you're a, you're a good musician how mm. does dyspraxia I thought dyspraxia would have sort of precluded being good at yeah pain. I thought so as well like, but I, I paid some fucking woman 400 quid to diagnose you with dyspraxia <laughs> got me his back so she, oh there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, she was like oh yeah you got it like but no, it's, um, it's my excuse. Yeah, I've got the dyspraxia. Yeah, I'm just terribly crippled with it. I can't possibly go to work today. Like, oh, that's <laughs> pretty good. Oh, yeah, I see what you did. Okay. Yeah, well, time for a retro uh, retrospective diagnosis of my own. Um, <laughs> call in if you think you know what I've got. Right. <laughs> today, <laughs> today, we're going to talk about what is commonly referred to as identity politics. Now, this is a term that's obviously thrown around, particularly used by the right and people in groups like Blue Labour to disparage anything that focuses on helping minority groups, be it LGBTQ or racial and religious minorities and so on. It's therefore a very tricky subject for socialists to wade into. And when we do discuss it, we have to be very clear that we're not siding with reactionaries. However, what is clear, and it's probably been most clearly observed in America, but it's had obvious parallels in Wales and the rest of the UK, is that identity politics is also increasingly a weapon that is being wielded by liberal capitalists to marginalise and attack socialists. So in the US, this was seen most clearly with the attacks on Bernie Sanders by Clinton and Warren supporting Democrats. So we'd have to talk about like Bernie and all his supporters having male privilege, you know, Bernie was racist and so on. Equally in the UK, many of the smears against Corbyn were driven by faux liberal appeals that, you know, he was racist. Identity politics, it would appear to me to have two pillars. So the first is a genuine belief in a quite warped analysis of power relations which basically holds that rather than being oppressed and exploited by the state, state apparatuses and capitalism, as socialists would contend, society is instead organised into a massive web of different races and sexes where we all oppress one another. So instead of sort of structural problems, the problem is actually with individuals. So this bizarre understanding of how politics and how power works, you know, combined with the absolute dominance of the professional managerial classes in political activism, has essentially led to the complete removal of social class as a framework for understanding society. So focusing on the common experiences between working class people of all colours, races, religions and sexualities, which was, you know, let's not forget the original focus of the American Civil Rights Movement, for example, has been largely abandoned. So instead, whatever identity you are now is the sort of the number one thing about you. And whenever structural things are discussed, this is almost never about capitalism. And this mad view of the world in which everyone just oppresses everyone else leads to the second pillar of identity politics, which is its particular methodology or form of activism, which basically manifests itself in what is often called call out culture. Now, again, this wouldn't be a problem, except that the worldview and way of doing activism 
has undoubtedly infected left activism. More and more young people are being socialised into politics through the tactics and analysis of identity politics. Obviously, they arrive there because socialists are by definition anti-racist and anti-all forms of discrimination. But they arrive in these groups. They don't know anything about socialism. In many cases, they're actively hostile to socialism and bring with them this destructive form of doing politics, which at its you know, most simplest essentially involves speaking to people like shit, calling people out on their privilege and so on, spend all, spending all your time policing people's speech and not paying attention to people's actions. So this corrosive tendency was most famously documented by Mark Fisher in his seminal essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, which is basically a desperate plea for return to comradeship and to do away with this new antagonistic way of doing activism. It's also been documented by people in the Scottish Indie Movement and by Bernie Sanders as chief organiser's reflections on that campaign as well. From our own perspective, I mean, I've personally been involved in the Welsh Indie Movement for you know since its inception, and I've been a trade union rep for, for years, and I've gradually seen identity politics permeate and tear apart left-wing movements from my own eyes. Anyway, we think, or we would, wouldn't we? It's time to fight back against this massively corrosive tendency that sort of got a grip on the left. In America, socialists have begun the fight back quite a few years ago, and we want to sort of get it going here. In this first episode against this form of faux progressive politics, we're delighted to be joined by none other than Walter Ben Michaels himself. Steph, Tell us a bit about Walter Ben Michaels. Right. So Walter Ben Michaels is a professor of English literature. He's taught in several institutions, including John Hopkins University, the University of California, Berkeley, and most recently in the University of Chicago, Illinois. Um, he is a literary theorist whose focus is primarily on postmodernism, uh, race in American literature and race thinking in American literature. And uh, most recently, his focus has been on class. And basically, his the thrust of his career has been to reassert the primacy of class in terms of interpret interpretation of historical and literary work. So um, he's a delight. He's really good to talk to. I really enjoyed this conversation. He's a, fant- a fantastic bloke. So... This is the first and we hope uh, another mini series in the same way we did a mini series on sort of empire after Afghanistan. So I just hope you enjoy listening to uh, Walter Ben Michaels as much as we did. Take it easy. Professor Walter Ben Michaels, we're delighted to have you on at one of our transatlantic calls. I thought I'd just start. What is your problem? What's the problem you have with diversity? Yeah, so the thing about it is, is that for a long time, I didn't have a problem. I mean, I was cool. Everything was fine. And what happened to me, I was just like an ordinary English teacher, university, writing Mind books. Minding my own business. Literature. Yeah, <laughs> minding my own business. I mean, and really writing books that, you know, were only read by like other English teachers, <laughs> maybe like, you know, 500 of them, you know, maybe a thousand if you really hit the number. And one book I wrote, a book called Our America, is about the role, race, increasingly central role, the idea of race came to play in American literature of the 1920s. And the 1920s was a great period for American literature. I mean, your listeners may not you know, give a fuck about American literature, but <laughs> seriously, if you read just books published between 1924 and 1927, that's like a lot of when our most interesting books were published. But they were also, in kind of complicated ways, um, racist, racialized and racist. 
So I was interested in that as a problem. And I was especially interested because it was the very same moment that actually people in the U.S. who'd been desperately trying to do sort of racial science. Like I used to teach at Johns Hopkins University. and It was kind of like a famous thing in the end of the 19th century. Uh, it's always been an important medical school. Plays a big role, actually, in Fitzgerald's later work. And the medical school at Hopkins, they spent years trying to, like, break down the difference between black blood and white blood, find the difference. Because, you know, whether or not you had black blood was a crucial thing about you in American life for hundreds of years. Hmm. Um, but they could never find the difference. They just couldn't do it. You know, and you got to give them credit. At least they didn't, like, make it up. But they could <laughs> never find it. So people were beginning to realize that actually there was no such thing as a biology of race. And I was struck by the fact that this in no way diminished anyone's enthusiasm for racial difference. And not only did it not diminish it in the 20s, actually at the time I was writing in the 90s was a time in the U.S. when we weren't hearing as much about race, but the idea of cultural difference. We used to have like sometimes interracial or multiracial um, sort of centers on American campuses, and they were all being replaced by multicultural centers. But it was completely clear that culture was nothing but a synonym for race. So you wouldn't talk about the biology of race anymore. You talk about instead about like the um, the culture of race, but it was the same people. Because like, if you were a black guy, then black culture was your culture. Whereas if you started screwing around with Scarlatti or something, you were doing somebody else's culture. And if you were a white guy, then like Scarlatti was like in some phantom world, your culture. But if you, you know, started playing this is whoever it was before Jay-Z, you know, NWA or something, then it was somebody else's culture. In reality, of course, it was that you were suburban Long Island culture, but it was black culture. So the thing about it is whose culture was whose totally dependent upon what race you belonged to. It was clear that race was as central as ever and it was becoming more and more central in American academic life and talking about things, but in the form of culture. So, I, you know, you made the mistake of I made the mistake of asking myself a kind of question. And the question was, since we actually really know now that there's no such thing as race. And since the idea of racialized culture, there being such a thing as black culture, really depends upon there being such a thing as black race. And since we know there's no such thing as black race, we can't really have a kind of coherent idea of black culture. Why the fuck are we so committed to this? So the minute you ask yourself that question, the answer actually was kind of blindingly obvious. If you want to talk about social difference, there were certain real advantages to talking about social difference in terms of race over the other alternative, which had never been all that popular in America, and had become actually invisible, and that was social class. Reducing race and class, you've got the difference between two models of how society is organized. If a society is organized by race and by culture, then the ideal is that all cultures should be equal, and you've got a problem when the cultures are not being treated equally. And so the goal would be to make all cultures equal. The goal would be to first discover what are totally real black-white disparities in American life and then try to eliminate them. Whereas if you organize a society by class, unless you are a Marxist, no one's goal is to make all the classes equal. The whole point of class is that they can never be equal. Races do not have a necessarily like antagonistic relation to each other. In an ideal world, black, white, Asian are all equal, all friendly. Why can't we all just get along? There is no world in which the working class has a kind of pluralist relation to the upper class. There is no world in which the working class is supposed to go, hey, as long as we're respected, we're cool. The working class have a material opposition built into the structure of a class society. 
So the minute you begin, that's when I started to have a problem. You know, until then, I'd been like, fine. But the minute you started thinking, well, there is a real advantage to thinking about race and racism as the fundamental problem in capitalist culture, that that advantage is it, 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 it obfuscates the fact that the fundamental problem of a capitalist society is capitalism. And then if you ask yourself, so why are people always talking about race? Why are people so committed to the priority of race? The answer sort of writes itself. They want to talk about race because they don't want to talk about class. So for me, race has always been in American, I mean, in different ways, but for moments of much more intensely in the neoliberal period, that is the last 25 years, let's say really the last 40 years, race has been central to capitalist ideology. This thinking, well, if you think about rich and poor, you think about, about the way in which people do racial identity now. So if we look at race, you say, if you say to look at mixed race, I'm looking at the card of demographics and it says that 0.7% um, of people in Cardiff are mixed white and Asian. 1.6% are mixed white and black African. So what does that mean? If you think about it, supposing I said to you, I know you have like a really, really smart mom and a really, really stupid dad. And we think those things are in some degree passed on and said, well, so I'm a person of mixed intelligence. You don't even have the fucking concept mixed intelligence. If you have like a really tall dad and a really short mom, well, I'm a person of mixed type. When you actually look at physical characteristics, we don't do mixed, but you make them racial. So either racial is nothing but a bunch of physical characteristics, in which case they're not mixed, right? No more than intelligence is or height is. Or race is like this kind of metaphysical thing where you think, no, if we're black and white, that's mixed. So to me, it's always been metaphysical right from the start. The main issue you have with diversity and you know, the trouble with diversity is it, as you said, it plays an obfuscatory role. It obfuscates the real root of social problems, which is class and not race or gender or religion. But playing devil's advocate, and I think it's it's only right that we should sort of push back against what you're saying there about uh, race and the obvious comeback would be well you know even if people don't have like black blood if there's no such thing as black blood or jewish blood or asian blood or like you know a or a asian culture or black culture or indian culture whatever there is nonetheless like and i hate to use the term because it's become so bastardized but there is a social experience of being you know black asian and yeah. whatever so there's, a cleaner, there's a cleaner way to put that which i would totally agree with I mean, it's the argument I always made the thing. A, there's no such thing as race. So therefore, being proud of your race or ashamed of your race doesn't matter. B, the fact that there's no such thing as race doesn't mean there's no such thing as racism. There <laughs> totally, totally is such a thing as racism. And I want to be completely clear, neither in the trouble of diversity nor in our America nor anything else I've ever written do I want to deny that actually racism has played a significant role in American life. Um, and in fact, if you're going back to the turn of the century part where this starts racism, the rise of sort of modern racism in the U.S. was crucial. Everybody knows, everybody's always known. One of the crucial things about the rise of racism was even then to use against both the black and white working class. The reason, there used to be a motto, an old union motto, black and white unite and fight. The reason there was that motto is because basically a fundamental strategy of the bosses everywhere was to make sure that white people who were getting paid 
next to nothing felt superior to the black people who were getting paid next to nothing minus one. So to create kind of hierarchies among the working class in which you could imagine the most racist writer in American life, the most influential, was a guy called Thomas Dixon, who wrote the Klan Trilogy. Um, one of them, The Birth of a Nation, was made into the movie The Birth of a Nation, right? a very famous movie for a lot of different reasons. A fundamental scene in every single one of Dixon's no uh, novels is like when um, some white girl is raped and murdered by some black brute. And what always happens in the novel is the white community, and it starts down with the up with the mayor of the town and down with whoever the lowest out of workest guy is in that white community. They're all brought together and you get a little list of the different sort of parts of the society they're on. They're all brought together and they all see themselves as brothers. They see themselves as brothers in opposition to the black guy who has raped that white woman. And the whole point is that the first job racial identity did in the in American political economy was make white workers start to believe that it was more important that they were white than it was that they were workers, and to make black people start to believe on the upper class was more important that they were black than it was whatever class they in fact belonged to, which was overwhelmingly the working class. So right from the start, the whole use of race, the reason that people are were right away committed to it, this was before the idea of racial pluralism, the big change we got in the 20th century was racial pluralism, was that race could be used to, to and was used to divide the working class and was used super effectively to divide the working class. I mean, this is something we were going to get into. Again, again, it's not something I agree with, and it's something that I enjoyed uh, reading uh, Alfred Jr.'s response to this idea of class reductionism. Again, to play devil's advocate, if you, know, you are, let's say, a, a Again, I hate to use the term lived experience. I don't like to use the term lived experience because it's what we talked about. This like the first person, uh, <laughs> this idea that it can't be invalidated. But let's say hypothetically, you know, you are someone living in a, a majority black area and you are victimized daily by the police. Or even if you are a middle class black or Asian intellectual write, writing on matters of American culture and the, the problems facing your community. Is it not understandable that people would foreground you know, this idea of uh, racism and, and sort of, you know, class, class is sort of submerged under the sort of dominating sort of traumatic experience of, of experience of racism. Yeah, so let's for a second leave out the middle class intellectual, um, whom I'm sure we'll get, we'll we'll get on to that. Yeah, no, if, yeah. if I did that, I, I wouldn't be on the call. Like, like, yeah. So <laughs> let's just start with like the working class, black and white. So I, I you live in Cardiff, where like, you know, looking at these numbers again, uh, you got to find black people. You got to know somebody who'll like give you a clue where to go. I live in Chicago. There's lots of black people in Chicago. I teach at a university that is, you know, not as we're not we're not proportionately black and working on it, but we're certainly proportionally minority. It's a majority uh, minority institution. Um, so yeah, if you think about, you know. The role played by racism here, I think it's foundational. It's worth just a back off and just give a little bit of the history for a second. And there, there's no question that A, racism was real and that B, racism is real. Hmm. So if you're in Chicago, if you actually use the word black and brown communities, 
right? Black and brown communities will more or less serve as a good proxy for poor communities. Now, that's not true. It's important to recognize that's not true in the U.S. as a whole. In the U.S. as a whole, actually, the majority of poor people are white. Um, But actually, in Chicago, the majority of poor people are black and brown. So first of all, there's a lot of good evidence thinking that, that this is the case. And why are the majority of poor people black and brown? Well, you turn around and say black and brown people are disproportionately poor, especially black people are disproportionately poor. Why? This is not like it doesn't require rocket science to figure out why a couple hundred years of slavery, another hundred years of segregation is actually going to produce a disproportionately poor population, not a majority poor population, right? But a disproportionately poor population. So no one that I know of wants maybe some people on the right who ascribe everything to individual responsibility, but no sensible person I know of wants to A, deny the fact that black and brown people are disproportionately poor, and B, deny the fact that the reason they're disproportionately poor has everything to do with racism. Okay? Those two things have to be true. And not, no argument about this, about what's important and what's not important, can in my in my view, even get off the ground until it acknowledges that fact, okay? But then we have to put that fact in relation to a bunch of others. So there's a history of discrimination, right? And the history of discrimination, history of racism, we could extend this, history of sexism as well, and extend this different direction. So if you want to think about, okay, that's how black and brown people came to be disproportionately poor. So, and this was at the core of the trouble with diversity. What do we want to do to solve that problem? So it turns out there are two ways to think about solving that problem. One way is to think about solving what in the U.S. is always called the black-white disparity. That is solving the disproportionate part. If 13.2% of the American population is black, but like over 20% of the American population is in the bottom quintile of American wealth, that's a problem. If 13.2% is black, but under 5%, is in the top quintile of American wealth, that's a problem. If that's your problem, you want to solve the disparity problem, what's the solution? The solution to that problem would be all the measures you could take to make it so that when you look at the bottom quintile of the population, instead of like over 20% being black, 13.2% were black. And look at the top quintile of the American population, instead of under 5% being black, 13.2% were black. That's what anti-racism is all about solving the black-white disparity. That's why in every American media source, every newspaper, everything else, black-white disparities at the core. It has a utopian solution built into it. I don't mean utopian here in a negative way. I mean utopian just to indicate the acknowledgement that we've made very little progress doing this, right? That black-white disparities in income are as great now as they were in 1968. But setting aside why that's the case and all that, say that would be at least a goal. So What's the strength of the goal? The strength of that goal is that if we ever achieved it, racism would no longer be playing a central role in American society. What's the weakness of that goal? The weakness of that goal is if we achieved it, inequality in American society would be completely unaltered. The difference would be in the skin color of the people at the different quintiles. You'd still have a bottom quintile, and you still have a top quintile, the ones in between, but now the bottom quintile would look, as they like to say, more like America. It would be like 68% white instead of being what it is now, which is about 55% white. It would be 13.2% black instead of being over 20% black. And that would be the case all the way up. 
So what's that curing? That's not curing inequality. Actually, not only is it not curing inequality, it's not even trying to cure inequality. What it's trying to do is make sure that the inequality is racially proportioned. So what it's saying is poverty is a problem, but poverty is only a problem if it's a function of racism. If we can get the racism, it's the kind of purest fantasy of equality of opportunity. This is why I say it's a completely liberal and completely anti-egalitarian position, because the whole point of equality of opportunity is going to be, hey, look, if you get to go to a, if you get a good education, you know, you're not discriminating against your race. You get to go to a good school. You get all the opportunities. You don't get socially persecuted. You don't get subject to microaggressions. You don't get any of that shit. And yet still, you know, the best job you can get is like healthcare aid, which in America is the fastest growing job, which requires no education um, and which pays $25,000 a year, which is not a living wage. If that's the best you could do, screw you. In a capitalist society, what we want to give everybody is equality of opportunity. We don't, the fact that in, during the same period we've emphasized this question of race, American society has grown progressively more unequal, and 2019 was the highest, most unequal. 1968 was the most equal year ever recorded in the American economy. 2019 was the most unequal year. Is that we don't, it's not a problem if it's getting more unequal. It's only a problem if it's getting more unequal because of racism and sexism. But it's not getting more unequal because of racism and sexism. It's getting more unequal because of capitalism. So then you have the other problem. So the other problem is, hey, we shouldn't be worrying about primarily the disparity between black and white. You know, the problem, for example, with being a healthcare worker, if we think about them as the emblematic figures of American society right now, because that's the fastest growing job in America. The problem here, one way to think of it is that they're disproportionately women, disproportionately women of color. In a just society, they wouldn't be disproportionately women of color. And those women of color who are stuck being healthcare workers could actually be like doctors and lawyers, and they could be supervisors, and they could be CEOs of the privatized healthcare companies that are screwing over their workers and actually the people they're taking care of as well, right? So that's one solution. That's the solution, the anti-racist solution. But the socialist solution is to say, the big issue here is not who has these jobs. The question of justice is not giving a bunch of people of color the opportunity to escape these jobs so that maybe in a just world, some white fuck-ups will end up with these jobs. That's not justice. The way you get at the justice is, changing the jobs. It's the jobs that are the focus. You're going to make it so the jobs are good jobs. If that's a good job, you're going to worry a whole lot less about the skin color of the people taking those jobs and think, no, if it's good to have the job, you're in good shape. So does that mean we shouldn't be anti-racist? You know, nothing. So I, I'm part of like a larger group. When I say larger, that's in very relative terms, right? It's still a very small group, right, of, of, of people who are making these arguments to be people like Adolf Reed, um, Adolf Sun to Ray Reed, who's a, um, a historian, uh, Cedric Johnson, political scientist and historian, um, Barbara Fields, who's written, uh, and her sister Karen, wrote an extremely important, uh, well-known book in the U.S. at least called Racecraft, which I actually reviewed from unreviewed books um, a few years back. Um, Ken Warren, who teaches African-American literature. All, no, all these people are, in effect, the people who are accused of class reductionism. And I'm fine. I'm totally down with owning it. You know, I'm, I've come out as a class reductionist. You know, I was kind of, I was, I was kind of like questioning for a while, 
But basically, I just decided, you know, to go with my class reductionism and to own it in public and to be proud. But nothing in so-called class reductionism, nothing in it denies, A, the role that discrimination has played in determining who gets fucked over in neoliberal capitalism, it for sure plays a role. Um, and no one who is a class reductionist denies that we should take every measure right, to eliminate discrimination. And there is no form of elimination of discrimination that I'm not in support of. If it may seem trivial to us, you know, but if you could actually prove that people with red hair are being discriminated against, I'm totally for it. Let's actually work on it because it's no, it's it's right that no one should be discriminated against. The fundamental mistake, though, is thinking that it's discrimination that is the that is the agent of inequality in our society. Discrimination is just a technology by which we sort out which people are going to get the most fucked and which are going to succeed. If we didn't do the discrimination, we'd still be sorting them out, but just by a different set of criteria. The only way you could overcome the inequality is through socialism. Uh, I'll be state some of these arguments that you've made very boldly, just in case people haven't read, you know, The Trouble with Adversity. You know, you're basically saying racism makes economic issues irrelevant. Anti-racism does the same thing. You know, the core argument that you've made consistently is that diversity is essentially the commitment to diversity that everyone has now. Everyone has now. Everyone is committed to anti-racism. Everyone is committed to diversity. Now, this is essentially a handmaiden of neoliberalism, um, that it's a tool that can be wielded very easily by uh, capitalism. It's something that the right has no problem with at all because it sucks the so-called left into talking about cultural wars. And basically that neoliberalism has no problem with diversity whatsoever and, and to that end anti-racism is a, is a meaningless thing and a commitment to diversity is at best I, just, I make one revision of that anti-racism is meaningless as a left politics there's nothing that, in anti-racism as left politics that doesn't mean that anti-racism look you know uh it's also it's completely wrong to go out in the street and like pickpocket the guy down the street right and and i'm totally against pickpocketing I don't think that being against pickpocketing is being against the left politics. It's being part of the left politics. Uh, it's, it's right to be against pickpocketing. It's right to be against racism. Yeah. And racism is a pervasive problem and it, you know, various forms of crime are pervasive problems as well. The point is that it's, it has nothing to do with the left politics. And insofar as people have come to not only think of it as playing an important role in left politics, but actually increasingly to think of it as the absolute core of the left politics, it's a testimony to the fact that there is no such thing as a left politics. In other words, that you simply haven't got when you just got, as I say somewhere in the book you were quoting before, is that you've just got like a kind of people, massive group of people who've identified themselves as the human relations department of like, you know, the US or the UK, and we're going around trying to make sure that everybody in this completely unjust system is treated fairly so that the people who are the most, the greatest victims of the injustice are the ones who are slacking off, not the ones who are black and brown or who are women. We, we've obviously had <laughs> our own experiences of this, but like, yeah, I would, I would obviously agree that, you know, the, the so-called left has essentially been reduced to, as you say, a police force and its activism now consists basically in, in rooting out what people deem to be personal prejudice that we solve, we can solve by uh, us as individuals, you know, doing better uh, or like 
apologizing for everything all the time. Yeah, so one thing, yeah. one thing I want to say about that is that the more people carry on about structural racism, the more, and which was always supposed to be the alternative to personal prejudice, the more they carry on about structural racism, the more committed they are to outing personal prejudice. Yeah. Well, the thing is, when people say structural, they just mean really bad. It doesn't actually yeah. mean structural. Well, it's it's a there's, a lot of, there's a lot of it. And there no doubt is a lot of it. You know, I mean, again, mm. the, the thing is, you don't want to get in the position where you're denying. People often want to say, well, you think racism is a problem. It's just completely not true. So, or these guys, the race structures think we live in a post-racial society. I actually never heard, I've never heard the phrase post-racial society used, except in the form of a sentence saying, people, when Obama was elected, thought mistakenly that we lived in a post-racial society. I don't think anybody ever thought we lived in a post-racial society. You know, you walk around the street, uh, anywhere in, certainly any street in Chicago, you can tell we don't live in a post-racial society. The issue has never been, right, to deny that racism is still functional. The issue has been to think, okay, what does it mean that racism is still functional? And, And more more, I don't want to say profoundly, but more pointedly, what does it mean that anti-racism has become the center of the left? And the point there is going to be anti-racism is the center of the left because anti-racism does not in any way threaten the relation between labor and capital. On the contrary, it actually is increasingly used as a tool of capitals against labor, as a tool, but Again, it's not wrong. It's not made wrong because it's used that way. It just has nothing to do with the left politics, you know. So you can't wield it as left politics, and no one has. I think it's interesting. I mean, in in the UK example, we have in living memory ex- the clear example of all the sort of bleeding edge gender, sexuality, and race radicals of the eighties going on to be exactly part of the Labour government in the 90s and 2000s. So we know that this politics, even when it was out of power, its stance was that it was going to threaten power and it was going to act as a challenge to establish power, structural racism, homophobia, sexism and stuff like that. When it got into power, it did exactly fuck all about that. We know this. We know that it is a position of weakness and it's something you do when you are not in power to puff yourself up and then it slides away once you get the chance to actually do anything about any of these things, you know? I, I'm interested to go back a bit in terms of the history. Like, let's talk about the left because, I mean, I think we're all on the same page in terms of how, you know, the, the, the left has, has become, you know, Nancy Fraser uses the term a left neoliberalism. It's a left which is obsessed with issues like uh, social inclusion. Uh, so say, actually, the term left neoliberalism was originally used by us. It's only because if we ever had Nancy and me on, and we, on the few times we've ever been in the same room, turns out we have kind of fundamental disagreements. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little more neoliberal, in my view, than you would have thought. But, you know, the, the, I guess the point is, you know, the, 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 the bastardization of the left and, and, and the, the total reluctance or, you know, the, the idea of talking about class would almost seem totally ludicrous, or even if it is used to talk about now, as you say, it is only used as a cultural thing. It, it, class has become an identity, like I'm well, working class. Right, it's used as a, yeah. as a, also you could be discriminated against. Yeah, exactly. That's but right. what I'm interested in is, you know, if you look at the, you know, the history of the civil rights movement, obviously, you know, uh, Martin Luther King was apparently, you know, heavily getting into socialism and the redistribution of wealth uh, before he got assassinated. And obviously, you know, it be, being strongly influenced by class politics. And, and how then is it, how, how has the left gone from almost a multiracial left movement 
and how has it turned into this now? Like, when did this all, when did it all go wrong? So, I mean, that, that is a really good question. And I'm probably, like, as a serious historian person, not the best person. I mean, Adolf would be a better person to answer that question. But I can give you a kind of a version of the answer. And the version of the answer would have a lot to do with, you know, the kind of, in my view, catastrophe that was 1968 for the left. And, you know, you can see it in the U.S. when um, a civil rights movement, I mean, in a way, it's at the origin of certain versions of the civil rights movement, because even within the civil rights movement, there was always a kind of dispute about where the focus should be. So what should the focus be on? Should the focus be on so on, on achieving um, uh, a kind of equality between black and white that was formal in terms of voting? And that was obviously kind of crucial. But within factories, should it be then on raising black workers up equal to white workers? Um, should it be, uh, should, should the material gains be primary or should actually, what was often associated with Du Bois, not symbolic, but real political gains be primary? So, and there was a kind of part of the black working civil rights movement and A. Philip Randolph, who was a, a major union leader, a black union leader, would be the central figure in this, who very much were committed to the importance of economic issues. That is, the whole idea of civil rights for them was in a certain sense an abstraction that if you didn't actually focus on actually making it possible for a black workers to earn a respectable living was never going, never going to be successful. And there's a way in which, you know, he lost, but it wasn't exactly his fault that he lost. I mean, if you think about the economics of this, the economics, the civil rights movement kind of peaks. There's the war in Vietnam. There's a kind of sense of the triumph of the left. But that sense of the triumph of the left is completely intermingled with an effect for lots of different reasons, the origins of what we now call neoliberalism. Mm. Obviously, Thatcherism for you guys, and then what became it for us. Mm. Um, so if you're trying, for example, to like, I've been reading a really great book um, that I recommend everybody by an American historian called Judith Stein. She wrote a really great essay, a very famous essay, The Political Economy of Jim Crow, um, but this is a book called Running Steel, and it's about the steel industry in the late 60s and the 70s. And one of the points she's making is that she's talking about how the white working class gets identified with a certain kind of anti-black racism. And it does, and not entirely mistakenly. But part of her point is, is that you get people who are extremely worried about black-white equality in the late 60s and early 70s and are trying to enforce it in, like, say, steel plants at a moment when the U.S. steel industry is starting to come under pressure. And what's going to happen to the U.S. steel industry between the late 60s and up to 81, when it falls off a cliff, is that all these plants, in places like Birmingham, Alabama, or outside of Pittsburgh, all these plants start hiring black people um, they're making real but insufficient. You could make them more real as we're trying to do um, efforts pushed on often by the unions, increasingly by the federal government to make it possible for black people not just to be first hired, least paid, first fired, but to move up. But this begins to happen in a moment when the actual people being employed in those plants is fewer and fewer. Mm -hmm. That is, if you have 4,000, 6,000 people working in your plant in 1969, and you're trying to enforce integration of that plant and equalization of that plant 
and you have 4,000 people working in that plant five years later, what's happened is you have 2,000 fewer jobs. Most of the people who've lost those jobs, because most people who had them are white, um, insofar as black people are being given access to other jobs, the perception is, not wrongly, that they're being given access to those jobs at the expense of white people. And the white workers are like, what the fuck? In other words, part of the point is that the way we ended up doing equal rights in the factories was we ended up doing it in a way that if you were at the moment in a capitalist economy where that ind those industries were expanding, you could maybe have made it happen. But if you were a moment in the capitalist economy when those industries were, in fact, not only not expanding, but rapidly getting smaller and would, as they say, fall off a cliff in 1981, then, in fact, you were really anti-racism was doing the work that racism had done for you like 100 years before. Anti-racism was now making it seem like the fundamental issue here is between black and white, white workers fighting to hold on to their jobs, which they don't really deserve because they got them because they're white. Black people fight to get to a portion of the jobs which they do deserve, but all those jobs going away, the vast majority of them going away, and leaving it so that the fundamental issue seems to be white racism. Whereas the fundamental issue is actually what we now call disinvestment. The fundamental issue is that there are fewer and fewer of those jobs, that both the white working class and the black working class are in effect being destroyed by that. And that's neoliberalism. So, you know, um, there have been recently a bunch of studies done. It's a big point that people make, and it's absolutely true, that the black-white wealth gap is the same today as it was in 1968. It's what I'm talking about. So that's completely true. So why is that? I mean, the reason that is, is because despite all the stuff that's been done, civil rights, um, despite a lot of work in which um, one guy's work I'm thinking of, I'm forgetting his name now, but Ray Reed cites him. He's shown that it would actually be even worse if he hadn't had the civil rights movement and all that. Is that mm -hmm. black people were disproportionate at the bottom because of the history of racism and slavery. And then as poor people in general, as the bottom got bigger and bigger and bigger, as neoliberalism produced the extraordinary rises in equality that we've seen. Obviously, the people who are already at the bottom were fucked more than ever. There is no way if the difference between the poor and the rich is getting greater and greater all the time, you can't take a population that's been unfairly located at the bottom and somehow produce some kind of magic because every gain that population makes is set back by the greater in, um, increase in equality in the population at large. So the fact that you're going to get like now 20 people making a whole lot of money in that factory of 6,000 is not going to do any good for either black or white in that factory. They're all falling behind. So there's a way in which this whole, I mean, another way to put it, the kind of, you know, materialist answer to your yeah, question yeah. of what happens is that in a period where capitalist economies, in order to function, have required what's kind of you know, neutrally called discipline, discipline in the workforce, making it look like and even making it feel like and even believing that it is. The fundamental problem is the relation between the white members of the workforce and the black members of the workforce is a complete, you know, ideological disguise of the fact that the fundamental problem is the way the workforce, black and white, has been treated. So, yes, poor black people are just as fucked now in relation to poor white people, or relation to white people, as they were, you know, in 1968. But poor people in general are much more fucked now in relation to rich people than they were in 1968. So if you tell the story, it's the story of 
no progress for black people, that's not that it's false, it's true. But the real story is no progress, indeed, whatever the opposite of progress is, regress for poor people in general. And by poor people here, I don't mean just the bottom 20%, I mean the bottom half of the population, at the very least. You know, it's like the last version of this. If you look at who's rich in America, look at the black-white disparity. Basically, the top 10% of white people have 85% of white wealth. So, you know, is it true that white people are the richest? It totally is. But the bottom, like, 30% of white people have no wealth at all. The difference between black, white, rich people and white, poor people is huge. It's interesting to just briefly go back to, you know, when you talk about, like, you know, the lynching of Leo Franks, and then you talk about the, you know, the material uh, roots of racial conflict, like, in, in the 60s and 70s, but, like, downsizing and stuff, it... As an aside, it is interesting because when people talk about racism and, for example, race riots in the UK and Wales in particular, what they often don't talk about or hasn't passed into the popular imagination is the roots of these in like essentially labour conflicts. Now, obviously, there's a problem with you know, white labourism uh, and you know, the imperial white working class is a huge issue. But what's not really explored is the day to day conflict between different groups over one group goes on strike, the other group get, you know, so for example, you know, anti-Irish sentiment in the Welsh coal fields normally related to the perceived undercutting of wages by them being brought in for scab labour and, and, so and, and, so, and so on and so forth. You know, but it's, the it's never really talked about. The US is that, yeah. you know, at a certain moment, there's a, a large and very successful strike, this is in the 1890s, in the Pennsylvania oil fields. And what they finally do to try to break the strike is they can't get anybody within Pennsylvania across the line either because they won't do it or because they're afraid to do it because the union is policing the line. Um, but this is like, you know, height of, uh, of immigration to the U.S. So they go down to New York and they, they're going to train, fill train up with like Italians just off the boat, right? You guys want a job? Yeah, we want a job. That's what we came here for. That was the whole point. We got a job. Right away like this, I got a job. Get on the train. So they take these guys to, I don't think it was Homestead, but whichever one of the Pennsylvania um, fields it was. Um, and they take these guys out there and and they, you know, escort them under armed guard into it. And they're scabbing. They don't even know the meaning of the word scab. They know the word scab, but they're scabbing. So suddenly you had like, you know, thousands of workers who now their whiteness suddenly becomes an issue to them in relation not to black guys who are not relevant to this story, but to Italians. Suddenly a bunch of guys who didn't give a flying fuck about Italians their entire lives are passionately anti-Italian. They're not passionately anti-Italian because, you know, they have a kind of built-in fear of the other or desire to otherize, like people whose mm. skin might be a bit swarthier than theirs or, or whatever it is. They don't have... They haven't even got any cultural cliches about Italians. They don't. The only thing they know about Italians is that these Italians are are taking our jobs. So yeah, you know, you're going to get. So does it excuse anti-Italian prejudice? No, it doesn't. But you don't even understand anti-Italian prejudice unless you understand it completely emerges out of this material condition. It has nothing to do with, you know, you knew the academy was just totally doomed to idealist failure when the whole idea of othering in and out group mm. became the way to think about this. It just completely says in and out groups is indeed structural, but it's structural psychological. It's like 
uh-oh, we don't like that kid. That kid's got red hair. That kid's other. We can treat that kid as less than human. And when, it's actually when that kid takes your job that you want to treat that kid as less than human, right? So there's a way in which, yeah, what you're saying seems to me absolutely right. And again, part of the point of anti-racism in its contemporary form, that it makes racism the central thing. And, you know, it's in the American genetics. It's in American, it's our original sin. What could be more ideal is the notion of original sin, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, absolutely going to take this thing and say, no, it's not a political economy thing. It's, it's like, it's like yeah, in us from the start, it gets passed on like this. Just to briefly go back to talking about the academy, I don't dwell too long, and it obviously it's a small area of human experience in general. But obviously in the last few decades, roughly coincident with the period you're talking about, you had cases of people faking basically ethnic identities in academic settings. There's a, the recent famous case, which I think you mentioned in the book, of Rachel Dolezal, and then there's Jennifer Krug, who pretended to be Afro-Latino, um, when she wasn't. And of course, there's Elizabeth Warren, who's the most famous case of that. And it, it sort of, I did just wondered if you could sort of talk about that and how, how it's become like a currency, basically, where people who are earning multiple, you know, multiple tens of thousands a year working in academia adopt identities well, to yeah, make themselves think, feel as though they're oppressed. Yeah, you know, I mean, you want to say in any situation, there's going to be, I mean, yeah, the Warren thing is the purest. Obviously, and you know, I mean, nothing can nothing can excuse Donald Trump, and he is a greater threat than anything else to us right now. But Focahontas did get it right, and there's you know, absolutely speaks to something real about her and about her constituency. But I, you know, it's hard to get that worked up over people doing this. I mean, (laughs) careerism. You know, you have to be very, very idealistic person to think that careerism isn't going to be at least as bad and the academic roles is anywhere else. And when you juxtapose careerism with a genuine sense by a lot of these people that no, their their feelings for whatever the irrelevant oppressed group is are so intense and their identification with it is so intense that in some sense, you know, they really do belong. And, you know, it completely helps them get that job also if they really do belong. (laughs) I, you know, it's pathetic, but it's not surprising. I mean, to me, the amazing part is more the outrage that whatever the relevant group is will manifest that this person's been like, because then it becomes clear what it's all about. It's not cultural capital, it's just capital. This job could have gone to an actual, you know, Latinx woman. And it's going to a fake Latinx woman. These white people, they just want to take it all. So, yeah, but the thing about it is, is why should the job have gone to an actual Latinx woman? You know, that's precisely really... You know, what you feel about the universities is they should just be burned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to sort of delay. Uh, and one, obviously one of the reasons I asked you on was to like trash, trash universities. <laughs> you know, you say you, you describe universities as the research and development arm of like neoliberalism is rich people's more than. And in the same way that, you know, you said, like, if we talk about the material roots of sort of uh, racial conflict in like the 60s and how the civil rights movement sort of fizzled out. This is almost the same time that universities are becoming and also student activism is becoming almost displaced in labor struggles, you know, in like across Europe. You, know, the, you have a you moment know. in 68, at least in yeah. Paris, right, when it looks like the students and, and the unions will all unite. <laughs> that moment in Paris lasts for 11 and a half seconds. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's 11 seconds longer than it lasted in the U.S. Yeah, but it, it didn't happen. And then universities have almost become the I mean, it's funny because people will invariably accuse me of repeating 
you know, right wing culture war tropes of like talking about, you know, universities is blah, blah. But like, but as you say in, in the book and as you've repeatedly said, universities like the most right people in universities who are like progressive are the most right wing people in the world. You know, like sure, they're, um, they're material, they're material stuff for sure. Yeah, right. and and you know, just 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 because these professors talk about, to give a classic example, uh, decolonization, or you know, they talk about decolonizing everything, just because they talk about decolonizing everything, it doesn't mean that they're like socialist in any way, shape, or form. So no, no uh, actually, the whole point is decolonizing instead of socialism. <laughs> yeah, so I was point. wondering if you could talk about, you know, because for me, the academy is the place where this stuff really does. Well, so in the U.S., it's like super visible. Um, so actually, I'll give you a, when I first wrote, so I wrote The Trouble of Diversity like a long time ago now. It's like 2005 or six, whatever. And in the year after I wrote it, I did many, many talks at American universities. That would actually no longer be possible today. I mean, I think that The Trouble of Diversity, I actually think that if I were trying to publish The Trouble of Diversity today, instead of publishing it with, as I did, a mainstream publisher, I'd have to publish it, you know, with, you know, yeah. it'd have to be something like Frank, you got Frank socialist to, press, like. Yeah, it would. You no, know, you. That's right. It would be like the. You know, I'd have to go. I'd have to. I could go on my knees to some Trotskyite to get them to publish it, which would be <laughs> really humiliating. Right? But the point would be, I was giving those talks then, and you know, if you went, so you'd want to kind of learn a bit about the university you were going to. If a lot of them were ones I hadn't visited before, and you go on their website. You know, within about two clicks, you could get their diversity numbers. That is, the ethnic makeup of their student body. Um, but you could click from now till hell froze over before you could actually get any income statistics about the students. And then, in a kind of unintended positive consequence, the Obama administration, which can, had completely convinced itself and everybody else that education was a force for equality in the U.S., whereas it's exactly the opposite. Education is the kind of funda, fundamental institution of inequality in the U.S. His idea of being a force for equality was he wanted to get data so you could begin to say the universities to which, when you went them, would make the most difference in your subsequent income status. So in order to be able to say that, you had to have data about what your income status was as a student. In order to be able to say that, you had to know what your family's income status was as a student. So the federal government, for the first time, started compiling data on. So it's called student family median income. And if you Google that for any university in the U.S. right now, you can find it. It was like, it's completely eye-opening. Um, I mean, it's not really surprising, but completely eye-opening. So I don't know if you remember, there was a, a big to-do about three or four years ago when a complete right-wing racist, although he denies it all the time, Charles Murray, gave a talk at Middlebury College. So I actually, I have zero problem with Charles Murray being shouted down. I have zero problem if they threw things at him. I got nothing in defense of Charles Murray. But what I was really struck by was the only issue these guys cared about, Murray's politics are, Murray also thinks that basically all workers are genetically inferior. But he, but he has a bunch of stuff in there about black people. He thinks of as genetically inferior. So nobody was worried about the workers' genetically inferior part. Everybody was worried about the black people's genetically inferior part. And when you look at the student family median income of Middlebury College, it was $233,000. That is, the people who were outraged by this appearance of Charles Murray were people who were drowning in money. If racism was a fundamental problem for them, and they are legitimately and sincerely anti-racist. 
And the discovery amongst any of them that they had a little racist bone in their body would be shock and horror. But they are zero. They remain calm in the face of their overwhelming income superiority. And then if you just start looking at that, you can just do anywhere there's been a major sort of anti-racist outbreak in a kind of passion, powerful form, U.S. The curious, surest sign to it is just Google what the median family income is at that university. And the higher the median family income is, the more inclined people are to be upset by racism and sexism and to be and to feel themselves unsafe in the presence of someone who might be racist or sexist. Anti-racism in the university level is nothing but a class program. At the core of the class program is to say the thing that matters most is something that has nothing to do with the thing that made us rich. Capitalism is not the problem. The thing that makes us rich, that's cool. What matters is racism. That's the problem. So if you want to leave your class status completely unchanged, but to think of yourself as a revolutionary out to change the world, anti-racism is the way to go because you can change everything except the thing that matters most to you and to all your brothers and sisters, and that is that your median family income is $233,000 a year. So universities are, first of all, American universities are in the main built for rich people. Their point is to make sure that these rich people stay rich. Occasionally, when they admit poor people, their point is to make sure that the poor people can become rich. Their only meaning, right, from the standpoint of education, is as a sorting system to make sure that the class system remains intact. So you want to say, in a way, I mean, for me, it was a little bit of a shock. I mean, I always thought of, you know, public education, especially, is kind of egalitarian. But actually, if you think about it, it's just not at all egalitarian. It's just like a, it's just a, a sorting system for figuring out who gets to be the rich people, who gets to be the poor people. And so what do you have? You know, I mean, I want to say, Althusser got a lot of things wrong, but he got this one totally right. Althusser always said, what were the two ideological state apparatuses? One was the police and one was the university. Yeah. So what did the police do? The police did it by force. The university did it, was the one that did it ideologically. And, and, and how, what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to teach the ruling class how to manipulate its ideology correctly. Anti-racism as the center of social justice is what the learning class is, a, is the picture of the learning of the ruling class correctly manipulating its ideology. So all the professors one hates, as well as the ones one loves, right, are insofar as their interest in questions of social justice are basically teaching you what ruling class ideology is. And that is capitalism is not the problem. Therefore, socialism is not the solution. Racism is the problem. Therefore, an anti-racist capitalism cleansed of all forms of discrimination. That's the solution. In the book, you say basically, you know, that, that sort of liberalism provides the right with a perfect image of like what you know the left is and it, almost a car almost a caricature that everyone hates and people keep playing into the right by you know this stupid like moralizing politics and and there's nowhere <laughs> you know nowhere is that more the case than university which is almost like a, a sort of par- parody levels of you know because right, uh, well, that's what the university turns out to be for you know yeah, extremely rich liberal people right and you uh, know it's not that all universities are like that but it's that all universities are trying to be like that yeah. And that actually all the ones you've ever heard of in the U.S. are like that. And then when you look at like, you know, the actual public school system, when it works below the university level, like the community college, the community college is the thing that, yeah, no, we have that. It's great. But of course, it doesn't lead to, you know, higher incomes. 
And in fact, most of the people who go to graduate community college, they're sort of in the main, in the beginning, richer than the kids who don't graduate. I mean, it's just like structured by wealth and income all the way down. We are going to do an Alphysa episode at some stage. My favorite dinner party, well, not that I go to dinner parties, but my favorite vignette to any of our listeners, obviously, Alphysa, like, killed his wife. And, you uh, know, as bad as that was, that wasn't necessarily the worst thing that Alphysa did. Um, <laughs> one of the things that, like, I, I want to circle back around to, as people say, is that the obsession with diversity as, like, a solution uh, or, like, as, you know, as a solution and the obsession with, like, the idea that racism is the problem rather than sort of capitalism you know, the adjunct of all this is an obsession with history in many ways. You know, like it, it, we see it in Wales, like, for example, the, the quote unquote left, I would say, spends most of its time talking about like Wales's participation in empire, like which no one is denying. But the whole point of it is just, you know, there's, for example, you know, there's, there's self-flagellation about Wales's participation yeah. in empire. Yeah. At the same time, like no one talks about the fact that like Wales is actually still participating in an ongoing empire you know like training <laughs> saudi arabian pilots yeah, on, Welsh, on Welsh soil you know british special forces being trained in wales that doesn't matter like no one gives a shit about that but what is important is to talk about wales's participation in slavery wales's partition in empire which is obviously yeah reparations which is obviously and then adam price the leader of Plaid Cymru, he actually said and he was like you know he's now apologized but he said that wales should get reparations from the british state because wealth was taken out of Wales during the British Empire. And obviously that was seen as the most offensive thing that anyone could ever say, that Adam Price has, has somehow now compared the Welsh experience, not that he was saying this at all, but like Adam Price is somehow now conflating the Welsh experience of exploitation with sort of black people and the slavery or Native Americans, things like that. And he was like, no, I apologise. He's the you know worst person in the world for suggesting it. You actually write in the book about you know, the problems of this idea of reparation, but I wanted to just talk a bit about first history has become that's all it's all we talk about, you know. It's it's all we talk about. It's it's is yeah, uh, and it's so all this, the left. It's all the left talks about. So this been a particular thing that I've been sort of obsessed with more. There is a bit about the book, but I have become more obsessed with last year. The way I want to put it is that you know, so Marx famously says, you know, uh, the the problem with bourgeois, you know, philosophers is that they've only tried to understand the world. You know, they don't try to change it. I just wanted to say that's totally right. But he, he, he forgot to add. And the problem with historians is they just try to understand history, whereas the point is to forget it. And this is, I think, actually now a significantly true technical point. And reparations is a good example of it. Reparations is entirely justified, right, on a certain line of argument, which is yeah. that there's just absolutely no question that black people today do in fact are economically, you know, uh, economically suffer from the fact that their great 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 grandfathers were slaves, that their grandfathers, etc. I mean, they were raised their entire family. They don't, they're not being born into large fancy homes, you know, in the suburbs. And it's a function of the history. So, what's the idea of reparations? The idea of reparations, is, and you can extend that really. It doesn't even be racialized. You know, supposing we, we could say, you know, the reason. That I'm poor. The reason, so in north of Chicago, there's a small, very rich town called Evanston, which has actually initiated one of the first actual forms of reparations in the U.S. If you can show that you lived, if you're black, and you can show that you lived in Evanston during a period your family did from, I don't remember the exact dates are, when there were like, you know, redlining laws in effect, yeah. and there was clear discrimination in housing against black people. 
you can get $25,000 toward a down payment on a house and they can work with you. With it. So it's an actual thing, a material thing. So, and you know, I say, well, but once you start down that line of argument, why should it just be race-based? I mean, you know, your, your poverty could be, well, you know, your great-great-grandfather belonged to a union and then they busted that union. And what was a kind of plausible and, you know, working class life was turned into like a kind of chain of disasters that we call neoliberalism. And why shouldn't you be paid what you're owed and what you would have had if your great-grandfather's union hadn't been busted? And in fact, you can give some kind of causal account of everybody's poverty, right? So what's the argument? All those things have in common one thing, and that is the idea that social justice is giving people the property that they ought properly to have. So you couldn't imagine a more, it's as if capitalism is now at the very heart. It's the horizon of social justice. If you're a socialist, you don't think that the problem is that some people have for historical reasons been deprived of their rights to property. If you're a socialist, you think that everybody should have a right to decommodified housing. It doesn't matter if your grandfather was the richest person in the world or if your grandfather was the most obscured, victimized, post-slave person in the world. Right? It has nothing to do with the past. It's like the example you just gave of what Wales is doing right now. The obsession with history is literally capitalism gone to historical studies in which the fundamental thing is to establish what your property rights are. To establish what your property rights are, what they ought to be, is an intrinsically historical enterprise. It goes back to sort of say, when was my, whose who's labor first got misappropriated in my family and why? So in capitalism, everybody's labor sort of did get misappropriated. That's kind of the essence of the thing. So you could kind of universalize it, right? But the point of it is, is that the line of it's still going to be going back to finding the moment in history where the person in history where you got fucked. And the alternative to that, the socialist alternative that makes the causal account of how you came to be fucked completely irrelevant. It does not matter. It makes history something to be interesting to learn. It's better to know the truth than not to know the truth. It's better not to be told all the lies that, say, the 1619 Project tells or that its right-wing alternative tells in the U.S., but none of it has to do with everybody's claim to decommodified housing today. None of it has to do with everybody's claim in the U.S. to decommodified health care. It does not matter what the history is. So to me, you know, I hadn't quite thought this through uh, when I was writing the trouble with diversity, but I sort of had like a little inkling of it. There's parts about it in there. To me, the kind of obsession with historicism is completely an obsession with the idea that the only true model of justice is getting what you're owed. And that getting what you're owed is completely, the what you're owed part contains it all, is completely an historical project. You can't know what you're owed until you do the history. You can't know what you're owed until you found out. You know, it's like there's a very popular program in the US. It, you know, it's just a mark of how fucked we are, in which people discover their identities. Skip Gates, who's an African-Americanist um, at Harvard, and personally a very good guy, but politically, not so much. You know, when they just do genetic testing of like famous people and they discover that, oh, my God, you know, they're part Italian or if they get hit the number, they're part black. They always thought they were part black. But unlike Rachel Dolezal, they really are part black. You know, so there's there's all that version of this thing. So the more powerful version is not discovering who you are. 
the more powerful diversion is discovering when you were ripped off. And if you were born into poverty, somebody else ripped off farther down the line. And the whole, so history is, you know, when were you ripped off? That's the core of all history. When was who ripped off? And it actually is a social justice program of a purely capitalist form. Because it says justice is getting back your property. It has a slightly different function in sort of like Welsh left politics in that the obsession with history is essentially the the reason people are obsessed with history and like Wales' participation empire is basically to keep uh, this currency of racism is the main problem in Welsh society and to keep talking about, you know, Wales is as racist, racist which, which which on the one hand is like obviously and it's a, it's a very useful thing to know like yes institutional racism exists and wales participate in empire and so on and so forth but to the extent that it's used and, uh, and deployed it's only used really to just bash people over the head and go wales is racist so and it, is, you kind of push further though i mean that's that's actually the main use in the u.s too because i made a jump right i said look it's always racialized so you can't go to rep- you can't go to evanston and say Actually, my grandfather lived in uh, Evanston at precisely the moment when, you know, you guys permitted the busting of whatever it is, the bricklayers union. And that's why I'm broke. They won't do it for you. What they're going to say is, no, dude, you know, the state was committed to racism. The state backed up the racism. The fact that your grandfather was broke, it's just the way the market functions. Right. But what I'm saying is, if you actually take seriously, I mean, you can imagine a form of the attempt to universalize this. In other words, take seriously the logic. Of what of what of what reparations is, which is that people are owed in a capitalist economy mm-hmm. some kind of restoration of property that has been that has been taken from them. But when you take it that seriously, you just realize how closely the thing is linked to capitalism. So yeah, I totally agree with you. The racialization is employed. The history is employed as a kind of um, as a kind of weapon against other forms of poverty. Right. But, all, but all it does is serve to actually cripple, in my mind, like socialist movements, as you said, doing stuff about the present, because it's all people, n- no one will talk about uh, uh, current poverty or no one wants to solve that, because the, the the whole point of it is just to perpetuate, as you said, almost like in the book, an apology culture, where the whole point is mm. we need we want big corporations, like it, amaz- some amazing examples in the book, you know, like Morgan Chase, all these people coming out and just saying, can we just say we're like so sorry? And, and well, it, was a great, it was a great moment in American history. Yeah. And it became universities. So and, and then, but also the fact there's an entire. Their founders were stakeholders. Who but, would have the, thought? But the, but the fact there's an entire industry dedicated to sort of, you know, to, to finding out what you did wrong so you can make a public apology because for public relations reasons. And, but also, as you said, it plays into this whole. You know, this idea of diversity and anti-racism is a perfect management of human resources tactic because if you if you as you said you'd much rather apologize for your your your, your past in behavior or you'd much rather diversify the workforce than pay it a living wage for example just to add to what you're saying right is that i i did say and i still do believe yes you'd much rather apologize for your past misbehavior than pay for it but actually it also turns out that you would not only rather apologize for it than pay for it, but you rather pay for your past behavior than actually pay for your present behavior. Sorry, if racism is structural, then this type of material recompense, so something like reparations, isn't going to cut the fuck, is not going to do the job. Because if the racism is built into the structure of class society, then what will happen 
would be the same as the type of things what happened after the 2008 crash. We had an enormous diminution in black wealth because of the, the housing crisis. You know what I mean? So if you were to make material restitution like that, there's nothing to say that the next fucking crisis wouldn't wipe it out anyway. You'd always end up at the bottom of the fucking pile because of well, the crash. Well, that's for sure true. That, that's for sure yeah. true. But I mean, it, it is the case, though, that that's right. I mean, and the point about it is, is that, yeah, if you're wiped out in a crisis, that's your problem. Or if you're wiped out because of racism, that's like a social justice problem. We owe it to something. So yeah, that's always going to be the case. And that's the kind of core of the argument. There's a couple of examples that you've used in the past to sort of illustrate, you know, the, the problem with sort of left perspective that is sort of, I'd say, hegemonic. And a couple of examples are, and I have to confess that, you know, these were entirely my perspectives until, you know, reading your book, listening to Adolf Reed Jr. and so on. Um, the, the first one is obviously Hurricane Katrina is the biggest example of you know racial injustice in the United in the modern United States, where obviously like you know uh, black people were seen to be the main, if not exclusively, the victims of Hurricane Katrina. And Hurricane Katrina, the response you know the response to it was seen as oh, this is evidence of institutional appalling racism by America by George Bush personally. I just wonder if you could talk a bit about the counter argument that you put forward since of course that that discussion i'm just looking up while as we talk there's actually been a um really great book edited and contributed to by my colleague uh Sandra johnson who is i mean I, I feel it's worth noticing this at a certain point that most of the people who hold the position that i hold in the u.s and who actively write about this are in fact as it happens african-american so all the reeds are, all the fields are. Uh, Ken Warren is, and Cedric is. And Cedric um, has published a great book called, uh, actually, it's almost 10 years old now, it's 2011, called The Neoliberal Deluge. He's from New Orleans, too. Hurricane Katrina, Late Capitalism, and the Remaking of New Orleans. And the point of the book is he knew more then than we knew when it was happening at the moment, because more had happened, which was that the whole thing absolutely it was geared to displace poor communities, and the poor communities were disproportionately black for reasons we already know, but that the people who profited from this were both rich white people and rich white black, rich black people in, in New Orleans. In other words, that the fundamental dividing line had nothing at all to do with race. It had everything to do with who was rich and who was poor. And in fact, in what's happened in New Orleans since then, um, which has become in certain ways, especially with respect to education. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys know much about what charter schools are. The charter mm-hmm. schools in the U.S. are a way of killing the public school system, mm-hmm. uh, the shorthand version of this. So New like Orleans, academies over here. New Orleans doesn't even have a public school system. New Orleans leased their entire school system in effect to charter schools. <laughs> Already, um, this was in the wake of Katrina, which was a huge victory for neoliberalism and for the upper middle class, the professional managerial class, and the truly well, who are both black and white, although still disproportionately white, but in an ideal neoliberal world, there'll be a bunch of black people there too. So the first point of this was going to be just that, you know, like they said right away, the major, um, the early response to this was the major thing that kept that got people killed in Katrina was they didn't have cars to get the hell out of Katrina. And guess what? Black people didn't have cars to get out of Katrina. But that's like... It's not that they didn't have cars because there was a rule saying black people can't have cars. Black people didn't have cars because they were poor. What made them poor? Capitalism made them poor. 
if they hadn't been poor black people, they would have been poor white people, and poor white people too were actually affected by Katrina. So Katrina was just a pure moment in which the effort to produce this as a kind of story about racism completely buried the lead, which was it's a story about capitalism. And in this case, a story about the ingenuity of capitalism, because from this horrible natural disaster, so this would be kind of Naomi Klein disaster. Yeah, yeah. You could turn it into like a little neo. I mean, if you look down there now, so I'm still sort of in touch with this because it's not my thing. I don't know a lot about New Orleans, but I go there a lot because I'm good friends with Adolf Reed and Adolf's from there. And he lives there mainly now. He's retired. We go back and forth. And, and you know, it's like New Orleans positioning itself as kind of like the city of entrepreneurialism and the city of invention. And all these kids go there. They go, um, young people out of Harvard, Yale, like that, they become a part of a, a group called Teach for America. Teach for America is a kind of idealist group founded years ago. Basically, it was like, don't go straight to into work for Goldman Sachs when yeah. you graduate from Yale. Go teach for America. Very <laughs> useful, above all, in bashing teachers unions. I.e., people who make a living, who depend on this, who've been doing it for 20 years. But no, we're going to bring in these fresh-faced kids from Yale, and they'll be able to do a better job than these people who are professionals. But of course, what the fresh-faced kids from Yale do is they do it for two or three years. They almost always quit. And then in New Orleans, they stick around because it's a really nice place to live. And they 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 start little um, uh, tech firms. They do startups. They get involved in the kind of local culture this thing. They just produce their version of the upper middle class in New Orleans itself. So what you've got is a kind of perfect storm for uh, the establishment of a kind of particularly unjust form of neoliberalism built on the disaster that was Katrina, but built not only on the disaster, but built on the understanding of the disaster as having nothing to do with the exploitation of labor by capital and having everything to do with prejudice of white people against black people. But, you know, there were numerous examples like during uh, Hurricane Katrina, I think, which would probably and understandably created this narrative um, of, you know, this is a mainly a racial problem, you know, so for example, of you know, black people being, uh, I think, you know, a black family, like, sort of being, like, gunned down by, like, police in the middle of the bridge and, and all, you know, like, the police being let off the hook to just, like, essentially murder people. But um, brings us neatly onto the issue of police violence and the racialized nature of police violence is an issue in Wales at the moment. So, you know, two uh, black and minority ethnic young men in Wales recently lost their lives at the hand of the police. So the response has been in Wales, as in America, that the main problem with the police is not that they are you know the police and it's not that they protect private property and maintain the capitalist system and oppress poor people it is that they are racist in that sense you know the, the british narrative and analysis has essentially grown out of the, the american one well think about it for us george floyd because it's an exact analogy right i mean george floyd so anybody you all saw the whole world saw no one could possibly see what happened to george floyd no. and not think that was a kind of brutal murder but if you look at the data for that year, 2020, I can't remember the exact number of people killed by the police in 2020, but people, and especially just to make sure that, you know, ambiguities about whether people are armed or not, just look at unarmed people killed by the police. There are well over 100 unarmed people killed by the police in the U.S. in 2020. In fact, though, the largest number of them are white. So you yeah, want to say in absolute terms, of course. Yeah, in absolute terms, because it's, you know, still a majority white country. So you want to say, okay, but the real problem here, right, is that, and it is true for sure, black people are overrepresented. They may only be like 13% of the population, but they're more like, you know, 
40 or 50 percent of the people killed by the police, not 50 percent, more like 40, something like that. But that is the pure. So Cedric Johnson, the guy who wrote the book about um, New Orleans, has a form for what he for how he describes Black Lives Matter as its militant racial liberalism. So why is it liberalism? It's liberalism because its primary concern is not with the fact that people are being killed by the police. It's with the fact that some groups of people are being disproportionately killed by the police. So the problem is the problem of racism, not the problem of people being killed by the cops. You know, and saying to you before, I think, to me, the kind of relevant analogy, suppose you have some guy, you know, and he, and he has two kids. He has a, uh, a boy and a girl, and he just beats the crap out of both of them. But he beats the crap out of the boy twice a day, and he beats the crap out of the girl once a day. So you want to say, okay, there's obviously a problem here. If we were following the kind of racial liberalism model, we'd say the problem here is that he disproportionately beats the crap out of boys. So what's the solution to that? Solution is he stops beating up. Well, I guess there are two possible solutions. He could, but no one really wants this. He could, like, beat the girl twice as much. So he'd solve that problem. But let's say, but no one imagines that, right? So it's an unfair solution, although technically it works. But the fair solution is, well, because we want fewer black people murdered by the police. So, right. So we don't want this boy beaten up as often by the police. So if you only beat the boy up once a day, just like the girl, then you solve the problem of disproportionality. That's the liberal problem. The liberal problem is the beatings are not in themselves the fundamental harm. The fundamental harm is disproportionate beatings as a function of racism or sexism. So the liberal fantasy, right, is that if you get rid of the racism, then you solve the problem. But the, the sort of leftist version of that, and I use leftist here as an alternative to liberalism, is that the fundamental harm here is not the disproportion. The disproportion is bad, but you don't solve the problem by making it proportionate. The fundamental harm here is that the police are murdering unarmed people. If you could solve that problem, then the question of disproportionality would never arise. And this is the great, I mean, I won't say it's the mistake of Black Lives Matter, because it's the way the point of Black Lives Matter. The point of Black Lives Matter was to say it's the disproportionate matter. And that disproportion is, and are people disproportionately killed by the police because they're black? You know, you have people arguing both sides, but I totally think, yeah, there's no doubt that for various reasons, police people, or in my mind, there's no doubt, are quicker pulling the trigger on black people than they are on white people. So is that wrong? For sure it's wrong. But it doesn't actually solve the problem, which is that in general, American police are quick pulling the trigger on people, and they pull them on white people. You know, I, I had a guy, I read a guy saying, I'm not able to find the reference, so I was trying to use it for something writing. Some guy saying, and this was in, in Kentucky, I think, after the Breonna Taylor thing, saying, you know, if this kind of thing happened to a white person, it'd be, it'd be all over the front page. It'd be all over the news. But in fact, of course, Every American can give you the names of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And because Americans' completely neoliberal idea of social justice has been internationalized, because actually, as we know, neoliberalism, no neoliberalism in one country, not only every American, but probably every Welsh person who cares about politics for a second can tell you not just who George Floyd is, but who Breonna Taylor is, and maybe give you some more names. I defy any of them without going to the internet right away and looking up as we talk to name a single white person who was killed. 
So the point is not we should be more outraged about white people. The point is that we're not outraged about the police killing people. We're taking that totally fucking in stride. What we're outraged about is the police killing people because they're racist. So that has nothing to do with making a genuinely more just society. That has just to do with making a proportionately less unjust society. That has just to do with sort of making it clear that making it so that people aren't killed by the police for the wrong reasons. The implication of that is that there are right reasons. And that is the right reasons doing what the police are designed to do. And it's no surprise that the police are killing people more often. Why? They're killing police more often because we live in an increasingly unequal society. It requires more violence for property to defend itself. You know, it's not like that's going to go away. As we're talking here, my email's still on, and I just get something which is comes to me so frequently that it comes to me marked as junk. And what it says is, why Chicago crime persists? Um, and then Chicago won't succeed in reversing its crime problem until its leaders figure out how to oversee police in a whatever. What the end of that sentence should be, oversee police in a situation where they need the police to be violenter and violenter and violenter. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and it will solve its prime crime problem then only by brutal repression, which is it will never solve its crime problem. This crime problem is a fundamental, you know, epiphenomenon of the fact that, you know, it's like the alternative. Radical demand of the U.S. now, and it was just fought out in Chicago, was how do we spend some of the money we're getting, hopefully from the federal government, in response to the Build Back Better, whatever's left of it after, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans collaborating, destroying it, uh, Biden program. And there was a big, the police are getting more money because all people say defund the police. In fact, people in the communities feel they need the police. So they sort of, there's a love-hate relation to it. So then the alternatives, but we need more money. They got the DSA guys to go along with this budget because we need more money for mental health. So mental health is a pure neoliberal solution. Why is there a mental health problem in poor communities? It's because they're poor. Right? Of course. So what are we going to do with that? One thing you could do, which like when you know people come out and say, we need to be able to like, get people better education, to get better jobs. You, if you get them better education, you get better jobs. That doesn't change just other people who don't have the good jobs. It's not like people in the communities are sort of saying, yeah, I could be a broker, but just haven't got like the, I haven't had the opportunity to do it. Almost no one can make a lot of money in the U.S. And the problem is, is that built into these communities is a structure. It's a structure of capitalism. It doesn't allow people to escape. It's gotten much, much worse. Even if you can escape it, it means somebody else takes your place. It means the gap between the rich and the poor gets wider and wider and wider. And the wider that gets, the more violent the police get. When you say the problem is that you're less racist, fine. You can eliminate racism from all of them. You're still going to be killing a whole lot of people. they got to do it because poor people actually are sitting still. I mean, Mark Fisher obviously wrote about mental health and, and how it's, you know, it, the problems of mental health are rooted in neoliberalism. And But you do make a good point in the book, which is related. My job, I come across this, you know, every day, but like the problem of domestic violence is, is a huge one. And domestic violence is seen not through the lens of of poverty and and capitalism, and but it's seen through the, the, the lens of patriarchy or sexism mm. and just this bizarre way of framing everything and in the same way of like you know in in wales I feel like i'm going mad because you know we've got knife crime on the rise homelessness on the rise all these terrible problems it's essentially society is totally collapsing like totally collapsing the fabric of society is being destroyed in front of our eyes i mean 
working in the homelessness sector, you see sheer human misery, like the rise of you know, an opioid, opioid epidemic in, in South Wales. Um, but none of the, no one roots these things in capitalism. No one roots it in, yeah. no one looks at it in class terms. It's all, knife crime is rising in Cardiff and the police are stopping, let's say, more, more black kids in stop and search. This is because of racism in the police in Cardiff. Knife crime happens right across Cardiff. It happens in white communities as much as, as, as much as as much as black communities. And it's happening because society has been absolutely destroyed because there's no job. Boys are having to sell drugs and getting sucked into gangs and so on, just like they are in America mm-hmm. for years. But the diagnoses and like the, the analysis is I just I do. I feel like I feel like I'm going totally insane um, when you talk <laughs> about it. And, and like we've been trying to talk about gentrification. We did numerous podcasts on gentrification and. And what the way people talk about gentrification in Wales now is that like, or especially in Cardiff, we go. So there's a, an area of Cardiff, which is, uh, you know, the historic uh, mon- ethnic minority part of Cardiff called Butte Town. Uh, it's, you know, great place. But Butte Town has become almost like a catch all symbol for gentrification. And the fact and so people will say gentrification is racist. So gentrification is inherently racist. And look at what's happening to Butte Town. We would say, well, obviously, gentrification affects all working class areas and always has them. It affects blood, it affects Ely, it's affecting all parts of Cardiff and always has them. It just is disproportionately affecting historically black areas because they're disproportionately poor. People are actively pushing back against that sort of analysis and saying, you know, and, and with a typical yeah. sort of liberal way of responding to everything, and just saying that it, it's not about capitalism, it's about racism, but also it's not about structures, it's about individuals, it's about gentrifiers individual gentrifiers is about that cafe or this cafe rather than the wider structure of capitalism i really don't know what can be done about it at this stage because i feel like you know obviously there is a pushback in your book and as you said there's a number of scholars and people who are pushing back against it in the u.s but in the uk and wales in particular i feel that we're so far gone in terms of like this sort of we've drunk the, the kool-aid in sort of identity politics and liberalism you know talk whenever class is talked about it's only talked about in terms of identity politics like as a working class person and so on and so forth so i'm just wondering how you see i sure share pessimism but i would say that, you know what you just said really just gets at the heart of it i mean what is the function you know they there's a moral point to anti-racism which we all share that is discrimination is wrong and I think the issue is not with anti-racism in itself anymore than it is with anti-sexism. All those things we should be committed to. But if we ask what the political economy is of anti-racism, if we ask why anti-racism becomes central to our political economy today, then we're asking not the question about its morality, on which we're presumably all agreed, but we're asking a question about the function of its centrality. And what you just said, I think, just captures it. It's that the function of its centrality is that it provides you with an answer to all these things which are part of a collapse of a neoliberal society without mentioning the central thing that has produced that society and produces its collapse. And that is the war of capital against labor. I mean, that's the core of all of it. I mean, the whole point is not to talk about class. And the whole idea of intersectionality, which is supposed to include class, is yeah. to not talk about class. <laughs> That's what I, that was actually what I was going to ask you about next. You know, I've yeah, yeah. it was treated as if it were a kind of thing to be overcome. So yeah. you have, so yeah, it's it's part of the equality of opportunity. No one should be deprived of the chance to become rich by the fact that they're born poor. But you know, we've always known that the fact that people can comparatively few 
But the fact that some people can go from the working class to capital, can go from being poor to being rich, doesn't undo the categories of rich and poor. It just makes an infinitesimal difference in who's occupying those categories. The whole point of socialism is that it's not concerned with individuals. It's concerned with a structure of class and in a capitalist economy. And it's not concerned, you know, with individual morality. It's concerned with the ultimate morality of what it means for one class to depend upon another uh, to exploit another for its existence. So, but I keep coming back to you know your work because, as you said, within that milieu of like the red turning brown and these blue labor lunatics, the reason that they can continue to pivot this way and the reason that like left politics or whatever has become this caricature is because of this sort of stuff, isn't it? Because it's like it's like every day there's something that they can yeah. point out. People do hate the identity stuff so much. Oh, yeah. Right? So that then they're willing to do almost anything to it. You know, a lot of my time is spent, you know, I get a certain amount of mail unsolicited, and most of it is like, you know, hostile. But actually, the real issues are not the hostile ones. The real issues yeah. are the ones got, I love your work. Yeah. And what they <laughs> love your work is. Yeah. Is that, you know, only you are defending kind of like individualism against this yeah. identitarianism like, stuff. No. Only you are sort of exposing the excesses of this. You want to say being against identity means nothing if you're not for socialism. The bad news is I don't I don't feel that there's any I sort of share your view. I in, in 15 years of arguing about these things, you certainly know that some people are convinced, you know, yeah. There are a whole bunch of people around the world who read the trouble with diversity and say, totally, I agree with that. And you certainly know that for the every 10 people who are convinced, another 100 people who read the book or hear those arguments say, that's bullshit, that's racist. <laughs> and another 100 million doesn't, don't care about it one way or the other. So the idea that by making these arguments, we're making a difference seems to me a kind of pathetic one. Although I do want to point out for your listeners that a book by me and Adolf, a collection of our essays, is forthcoming with an English press, Eris Press, sometime this spring, and that if we ever figure out what the title should be, you'll all be hearing about it. But that, I think the crucial thing to say is that the upside, the downside is pessimism is, is warranted. The upside is that I'll never see it, and I don't know if you'll ever see it. <laughs> Maybe if you have children, your children will see it. But the hope is that out of the catastrophe that capitalism will produce, something better will come. And that if we carry on about what we actually really want, which is a society without class, at least it's in the minds of somebody that this is like a plausible alternative. And that when you look back at this, if we're doing the history 100 years today, you can say, yeah, the people who kept on saying it's racism and racism and racism, they were the last fucking defenders of this unjust system. And they were not saying that to sort of moralize them. It's not that they were bad people to do it. They presumably believe every word they're saying, and they're totally right about racism being bad. And yet, the structural function they are performing is to defend capitalism and to make it more difficult to see what the real problem is. So, yeah, you know, I wish I'd be around. I mean, it's not personal. It's not formal. You would like to see a socialist revolution. You would like to stick around. I know that if there were a socialist revolution, by the time we got to the third purge, I'd be purged. But it would be so much fun. I'm glad you talked about uh, individual morality because, like, essentially, the final chapter in the book is you sort of saying you you, you know you're an arsehole, you're not very nice to like uh, homeless people and so on and so forth. Um, But also, amazing how convincing convincing people found that (laughs) job. 
but there's a fundamental question and and like so i know instinctively that you know the reaction i mean i i personally think that you know the people who are into identity politics now as you said they're so dug in they're so far gone they're almost you know they're like they're as bad as anti-vaxxers and so on and i know that the, the response is always well to you know to, to our podcast well why should i listen to them it's three white men so why should we and, and you address this in the book in the, in the conclusion why should we listen to you Alderman michaels because you are a rich white academic you know why should people listen to you yes uh, you know i mean the kind of best answer. so there are two answers to that one is an answer trying to give but people then say oh no no he just says some of his friends are black so as if you think if you have a problem listening to a white guy say it, i can tell you i'll give you the fucking reading list you can listen to a whole bunch of <laughs> versions of the same thing that eliminates things Actually, if you have a problem with a with a white guy saying it, we solve the white problem. We'll go black guys. But I have a bunch of black women. You can listen to them, too. So then you realize, OK, at a certain point, the problem is not, you know, everybody wants the problem to be with who says it. But yeah. you know what? They don't like it any better with a, when a black man says it. They don't like it any better when a black woman says it. They don't like it any better when anybody says it. No. The reason you should listen to it is because it's true. So, but you can't figure out whether it's true or false until you actually listen to it. But I have to say, I don't, you know, I hope you both, I mean, I know you do to some extent, but I hope you both have secure jobs in some <laughs> world that is not related to the academic world or to the intellectual world in any way, because the intellectual academic world really, really sucks. You know, <laughs> um, it's more comfortable in certain respects, but it's not like you're going to convince anybody. And as I said, so before we went on, the trouble with diversity got a, a, a lot of reception. There was a lot of, I mean, it got reviewed both ways. Some people loved it. Many people didn't love it. But it got, in a way, a perfectly fair hearing. I would never say, you know, it, it was not, as it were, canceled. Right? Mm -hmm. It was there. I couldn't publish that book today. I had to publish it, like you were saying. I'd have to find some Trotsky I'd press to publish it. And I had to get on my knees for Trots, and that would be worse than getting on your knees for liberty. And you and you've been reduced to coming on this podcast as well. Which is a <laughs> although, although I will say in my own defense, I haven't realized how bad you guys were because we don't know a lot of them. So somebody said to me, who's the worst, you know, the most offensive podcast in Wales before we started? If I'd known the answer was the one you're about to go on, I might have reassessed. No, but we're, we're delighted to have had you on. And like I said, yeah, hopefully this is... And, and hopefully this is the start of, you know, we are going to do a series like against identity politics and why it is corrosive and, you know, why class politics is uh, sort of the way, the truth and the light. And, and I, I was interested in reading that Eugene, the bit about Eugene Debs, you know, because I'm increasingly coming around, <laughs> coming around to that position. But people can do their own research on that. Um, Look, but I give you it, one piece of advice. <laughs> I don't think you'll take it, but give you one piece of advice. I mean, I, it's been forced on me, but I've actually never liked the term identity politics because when you use the term identity politics, you're using yes, it right away to attack, and you're not getting the logic of the thing. Yeah. There is a more neutral way to put it, which I think, you know, in principle ought to be effective, which is that the core of what we're calling identity politics, the defensible core of it, and it's a real one, is to be against discrimination. And you're not against, you're not for discrimination. You're not against against discrimination. What you're against is the moment in which and the people for whom discrimination has become the be-all and the end-all of social justice. Right. So discrimination, anti-discrimination is the lodestone of neoliberal social justice. It's neoliberalism's wet dream, a society in which there is no discrimination and the only inequalities there are are justified inequalities. 
people who actually deserve to be as fucked as the homeless people are and are not being homeless because they're white or because or because they're black or because they're men or because we're anything. It's not prejudice doing it. So I always think I'm not really trying to fight identity politics. And I've never there. Some of my things are titled with that. It's always been a title given by some editor. In my own writing, I've almost never used it. And the reason is because I, I think people do feel they're being attacked right away yeah. in identity politics, and they're being attacked for something that they feel is not wrong. And I think it's incumbent upon us to recognize that a core commitment that identity politics so-called comes out of is anti-discrimination, and that we don't think that's a mistake. Mm. We actually think that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, you guys are too far gone. No one will ever listen to you. No, that's not 48 <laughs> people and three or four members of your family who currently do who now know more about me than they ever thought. No doubt they will welcome me to their homes, all four of their homes, when I come to visit you and wherever the fuck you are. But the thing about it is, is that if you think about doing this in a kind of broader world, there is a way in which you can make the argument by saying, look, discrimination is important. It should be fought. The mistake is, what does it mean to think that discrimination is everything? And I do think, you know, the neutral way of describing our current moments to say, we're at a moment when you cannot, when people cannot consent, which, you know, Thatcher famously said that, like, you know, neoliberalism, you shouldn't put it that way, was not just a battle for control of the economy. It was a battle for people's souls. Mm-hmm. And the way that battle got won was when in people's souls, the thing that truly offends them, the thing they think is truly, truly wrong is racism. They are not wrong to think that racism is wrong, but they've lost the battle for their souls because in putting racism or any form of discrimination as the kind of central thing, they've accomplished exactly what Thatcher wanted, which was the idea of exploitation has disappeared. And the idea that it is foundationally a wrong has disappeared. And that's why, you know, that's why we're so fucked. It's because actually she did win that, not just her, but like all the hers, all the Thatchers there are all around the world. And it just turns out they're all. <laughs> Before we go, we're wondering, we always ask people if they have any shout outs or any beefs they want to start. I'd also like to ask you what your favorite fruit is. New question. Just introduced it. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you could see my, well, you can see my face now, the audience. <laughs> yeah, can't <laughs> thinking my favorite fruit. Yeah. So I guess the first thing I have to say, to be honest about this, is that I could give a list of my 25 favorite foods before any fruit would even show up. So you're asking me, in effect, which fruit do I dislike least? Yes. Uh, And what's okay? What's your favorite food? My favorite food? Why are we even having this discussion? (laughs) 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 I don't know. I like you know. I like. I like a good bolognese. I like a good bolognese. I have to choose yeah, if there's one I had to have for dinner for the rest of my fucking life, yes. had that every night, it would be a good bolognese with a bottle of, you know, passable red wine and nice. some decent bread. Um, and my favorite fruit thing, I'm just going to pass on that one because you go for that and you get tomato and bolognese, that's your favorite fruit. Who solved well, it? Yeah, so I, there's a little bit of carrots. Is that what you said the bolognese? Are you, are you went yeah, out but actually it's really true in a properly made bolognese there's a little bit of carrot so carrots are, well, carrots are not a fruit no carrots are no. a vegetable 
I thought I thought in Wales there were no. I mean, I'm sorry. My vision of Wales is how green was my valley? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no fruit. And there's no fruit in that. There's just like pasty-faced kids covered in coal. <laughs> you know. I mean, and you guys sort of look like you could totally be in that movie. <laughs> so, I mean, do you all eat fruit? If you do, it's just not helping. Or maybe it's not like it. I said the beef, I think it's not on his best. It's not the beef for the podcast. That's the best, like. an, the best answer we've had so far. <laughs> but, uh, no, th- honestly, thank you so much. Like I said, when, when your new book comes out, we'll hopefully like review it. We'd like to have you come on again. But like I said, we're really grateful for you given for you for giving us your time so thank you again just talk to you if i ever somehow am in wales where i've never been i would totally uh totally thank you we get you i'll buy you a drink and then you can buy me many drinks and then we'll just all (laughs) we'll just all eat like i don't know pineapples or something (laughs) it's your national thank you principle Listen up, my name is PC Principal. I don't know about you, but frankly, I'm sick and tired of how minority groups are marginalized in today's society. I'm here because this place is lost in a time warp. Students who still use the word retarded. A teacher who said women without wombs should get an AIDS test. Oh, I was a lesbian then. A chef person of color who the children had sing soul songs and who the children drove to kill himself. Yeah, he got brainwashed by a cult. And that's two days' detention for you, young man. We'll see you at four. What? Let me ask you this. We're in Colorado, right? Where are the Hispanic kids? Huh? Where are the ethnic and racial minorities? Well, we have Token. He's black. And that's two days' detention for you, Mackie. Congratulations. Well, I got detention? I googled South Park before I came here. And I could not believe the shit you were getting away with. People claiming to be advocates of transgender rights, but really just wanting to use the women's bathroom. A white man who thinks he's Chinese and built a wall to keep out Mongolians. Ooh, I hate a Mongolians. What the f*** is this? Are you kidding me? I'm telling you all, this is done. Like it or not, PC is back and it's bigger than ever. Woo, 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 you hear that? That's the sound of 2015 pulling your...